You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. As someone who's covered health and science for several years, it's an enormous pleasure to welcome Dr. Kazmierka Corbett. She's a viral immunologist, a key scientist behind the invention of the mRNA vaccines, and now an assistant professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Corbett, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Let's, let's hope for a good 2022. Well, let me start with the news of the day, if I may. Um, we have, I think, a record-breaking million cases out there. President Biden has called for increased testing and also doubling the number of antiviral pills available. Um, and in Maryland, we have a state of emergency now with this um, increasing number of hospitalizations. So maybe you can give me your take on Omicron, the threat it poses, and also the possibility for new variants. You know, I actually call it the oh my God variant rather than the Omicron variant. <laughs> I've seen you tweet that. Yeah, you know, um, just to make a little bit fun of it, even though it is not um, fun to be experiencing this at all. Um, variants are coming because we are allowing the virus to circulate around the globe continuously. And so as the virus circulates, the virus makes copies of itself and it makes copies of itself that get better in whatever way is possible for that the virus to come back around and do a little bit more harm. In the case of Omicron, obviously what you're seeing is perhaps a little bit um, better at being transmittable between human to human. Obviously, there is some evasion of pre-existing immunity, whether it be from prior infection or vaccine responses. And because of that, we're seeing record numbers of cases. And these cases um, are coming in both vaccinated and unvaccinated people. The interesting thing, though, and the most important part of it is that just like with many of the previous variants, that largely the vaccine is keeping people safe from severe illness. And as we are seeing people flooding the emergency rooms, being hospitalized, and unfortunately some ending up in the ICU, it is important to remember to be vaccinated, be vigilant with your dose, with your booster doses as well, and to get your kids vaccinated and to remain atop of the situation and try not to catch the virus as the hospitals are becoming a little bit overwhelmed. Well, Dr. Corbett, we're seeing this enormous divide on one side, people who are resistant to vaccines, and on the other, we're learning about people who are going out and getting four, five, and six vaccines even um, in an effort to protect themselves. Is there any moment where we will need continual vaccination, do you think, to go back for renewed vaccines or variant-specific vaccines Give us the broad picture of what's going on here with vaccination. The fun part of this from a scientific point of view is that I'm, we're all learning in the moment. And um, when, you're, when you do science for such a long time, it's very interesting to wake up to new data that kind of points you in different directions. And that's exactly how the policy goes as well. And so I say that to say that time will tell uh, whether or not we need additional booster doses, um, whether or not we're going to need to change the, uh, the vaccine and to match any of the variants. But all of those studies are underway. Obviously, there's continuous monitoring of the vaccine responses, seeing how the immune responses wane over time, particularly now that um, I think it's about 20% of the adults that got two doses of the vaccine in the U.S. have now gotten their boosters. So we'll be following that situation very closely. Ideally, no. 
But the real way to really get that under control and to be able to say, maybe we won't need to get additional doses is to keep the circulation of the virus down to a point where the immune responses match the amount of circulation. And so you have this, what is called herd immunity, and we're able to really control the virus in a way that we aren't seeing lots of people getting sick and lots of people going into the hospital. So just get, by getting back to those people who are, who are going off on their own and getting extra doses, can you ever over-vaccinate yourself and damage yourself that way? Or are they just useless at some point? I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say they would be useless, but what I would remind people to do is to follow the recommendations. Um, these booster doses um, that have been called forth with the recommendations by the CDC and the FDA, they give you this extra oomph of immune response that is good, it actually awesome, I think with about 90% protection against severe disease, even against Omicron. So you don't want to overdo it with, um, without any necessity. I would say to follow the guidelines that are set forth and um, to remember that we're all tracking the situation kind of in real time and that the data will soon come and the recommendations will come if and when you shall need a booster again. Well, let me take you back into the lab a little bit. Um, I know one of the goals is to create vaccines that will act more broadly and deal with all variants or potentially even all coronaviruses. How are we doing with that sort of process? Are we getting any closer? There are tons of vaccines that are in the pipeline um, that could potentially answer those kinds of questions. People are designing different types of protein vaccines and nanoparticle vaccines or um, making the mRNA vaccines and cocktails and et cetera, and testing these in what we call um, in vaccinology in the preclinical stage. So that is before going into a human to assess really what their viability might be. Um, I want to remind people that vaccine development, even in the front of, of what we are experiencing now with the mRNA vaccines and also with the J&J &J and AstraZeneca and et cetera vaccines, those development processes took took far longer than what you see in the media because the research for the preclinical stages was done largely prior to this moment. So to remain patient as we think about these so-called pan or universal coronavirus vaccines, I also want to remind everyone that although it seems like, you know, we are in this dire necessity to have vaccines that so-called target all of the variants that the mRNA vaccines that are currently in use are doing well against these variants, particularly where we want them. And that is keeping people from dying, keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people from very, very severe illnesses. And aside from pan-corona vaccines, there are other mechanisms that vaccinologists and virologists could take to um, stifle um, transmission, such as Internasal delivery of vaccines and et cetera. And all of these things are being investigated. The important thing, though, is to remember that as the data continue to come out, the tide can shift in any one direction or another and to just remain atop of it. And then also to remain atop of your own personal health when it comes to being infected with COVID. So this last couple of years has been such a triumph, a biomedical triumph um, story with the vaccines. But there's this mantra in public health that, you know, vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations do. And I'd love to ask you, what needs to change from your perspective? What, what are we not doing on that public health front? This moment actually has met 
even me with some level of just despair as we think about how well we did with getting these vaccines out and approved in a safe and effective manner, but not really getting the type of uptake that we would expect or hope for both here in the United States, but then also globally as well. And a lot of that comes from the so-called vaccine hesitancy. And so um, I would hope that we would have done better. I would have hoped that we would have started the conversations with people a little bit earlier. I would have hoped that we would have been able um, to communicate both the science of these particular vaccines as it was being developed even prior to this pandemic um, with people a little bit sooner. And I would hope that we would have been able to establish a little bit more trust both in the vaccines, but more broadly in the system from which the vaccines come, which is quite frankly, a lot of where, from where the hesitancy stems, or as I like to call it, vaccine inquisitiveness stems. Um, so there is some level of conversation to be continued to be had. Um, and, and certainly we are not to a place of where we can you know, shout from the mountaintops of how great we've done vaccinating. I think that at this point, maybe up to only 65% of people have been fully vaccinated, adults, at least in this country, which is um, not good, especially when you can really walk into any drugstore and get a very free, safe and effective medication that can prevent you from dying or being severely ill from a virus. And um, we're doing even worse in many other countries. So just take this moment, take the advantage of the moment and give us your pitch. This is groundbreaking technology. <laughs> Tell us just very quickly how it works, why we should trust it. The elevator pitch. Vaccines work by training your body to fight against the virus by mounting an immune response that's able to act like soldiers and fend off when the virus comes your way. And, you know, it is important to get vaccinated rather than how people have liked to call it natural immunity, which I'm not even really a fan of that term, but to come in contact with the virus and to supposedly build up this immune response in a very natural way. And it's important to do that because vaccines are safe at mounting up these types of immune responses. Whereas if we were to allow the virus that causes COVID-19 to circulate around this globe and for every person to build up quote unquote, natural immunity, 40 million people around the world would potentially die from this virus. And we can prevent that by getting everyone vaccinated, by staying atop of our vaccines, vaccinations and our boosters. And it is just the very safe way to train your immune response. So go about this safely. It is certainly, I, you know, part of the elevator speech over the course of the last six months or even to a year has evolved to just basically say, it's not if you're going to come in contact with this virus, but when. When you come in contact with this virus, would you prefer for your body to have mounted the best immune response possible, and that is via safe and effective vaccine, or not? And then on, the, on that not side, the potential of having long COVID, breathing problems, uh, brain fog, all of these things, side effects that might come from being infected. And certainly I would hope that most people's risk assessment would sway them to get vaccinated. And just very briefly, give me an outline of what sets Moderna apart from Pfizer and then those two vaccines apart from J&J. I know those are huge questions, but if you can do it in a few words, we would love it. I can do it very simply. Moderna and Pfizer use similar technologies. They use messenger RNA to deliver one protein called the spike protein. 
just trains your body to see that spike protein very clearly and vividly. They um, use two different doses. Um, Pfizer has been approved down to children even to five years old. Moderna has not just yet. Pfizer, the first initial doses come three weeks apart. Moderna's comes four weeks apart. But largely, these two vaccines um, run neck and neck when we think about efficacy, um, despite the headlines that you see that Moderna might be quote unquote uh, better. I think that they really run um, broadly just neck and neck with efficacy and safety. And um, with the J&J vaccine and similar vaccines, uh, like, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine, these are um, particles that have the spike protein on top of them. And so it's a very different platform. But at the end of the day, they do the same thing by training your body to see the spike protein. And so therefore, when your body comes in contact with the virus, it has seen those proteins on the surface and is able to defend against those, those viruses. So Dr. Calvert, this is not the first coronavirus we've seen. We've had SARS, we've had MERS, and now we have this one and we have coronaviruses that cause common colds. But take us back to what must have been a very heady, if frightening moment in early 2020 when you realized you had the goods and could create a vaccine. What was it like? You know, interestingly enough, it wasn't really frightening at all. Um, the one thing about having faith in your science and your data is that in those kinds of moments, you you really dial back what could be fear and really make it into a motivation. Um, and so the anxiety, so to speak, became very motivating in those moments. And, and that's what we did. We just motivated ourselves to use the knowledge that we had built up over so many years um, to maneuver um, and, and to collaborate with our collaborators and to work together as a large team back at the National Institutes of Health and to get the job done. Um, it didn't really become scary, quite honestly, until the data started to look so good that you realize like, oh my gosh, this probably is going to be in people's arms. <laughs> um, that's when it becomes more realistic and a little bit more scary. But those, those first moments were really around proof of principle that you know we, we, we could potentially have this under control. Are there any other vaccines, perhaps measles, that are as good as the coronavirus vaccines you have come up with? The one good thing about the measles vaccine, first of all, the measles vaccine is amazing. Um, the efficacy is is in the upper 90s, I believe, and it has a very long durability. So vaccines in general tend to always just warm our heart with just how amazing they are. I mean, largely because the immune system has evolved to be such an amazing tool at um, helping us to defend ourselves against um, um, external pathogens. But vaccines and the way that they tell your body to do that um, always never cease to amaze me, whether it be the measles vaccine, the human papillomavirus or so-called Gardasil or the, the um, for cervical cancer. Those vaccines are also really amazing. I could list many of them. I'm obviously... <laughs> I obviously really love vaccinology, but um, you know, some vaccines are considered to be better better than other. And a, a large reasons why some vaccines are better than others is because of the types of immune cells that it types it seems to trigger, or even how your body might react to the natural path pathogen. Um, we know that for respiratory viruses in particular, it's sometimes very hard um, to vaccinate against those because even as adults, we see a lot of respiratory pathogens every single season from September to February. And 
um, you know, even if you don't get necessarily really sick, you get exposed and get a, some sort of infection. So it's very hard to, resp to, to vaccinate against respiratory pathogens. But I think that these messenger RNA vaccines, and also, quite frankly, the J&J vaccine, I think, was very good, too, um, do a very good job for, for COVID-19. I'm listening to you talking with such conviction about the importance of these vaccines. And I'm also thinking to another story of the past two years, which has been of the huge health inequities and black and brown populations have suffered disproportionately during this pandemic. So what does Dr. Kazmekia Corbett do to address those issues in a country which is so divided in some of these areas? What I have done and what I continue to do actually has changed over the course of the last two years. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying two years right now. That's a little bit scary. But, you know, at first, what I was doing was tapping into um, media outlets that were particularly tailored towards communities of colors to really get the, the, the word out, particularly not just the word, but the knowledge out. It was very important for me in the beginning to make sure that people understood what mRNA was and how these vaccines work. And then as we got to the point of where we were rolling out the vaccines um, in real time, I was really targeting on a very community level where I was talking to people's churches and youth groups and et cetera. And you know what? Today, I think that because the people who are left vaccine inquisitive or really hardened on the fact that they will not get the vaccine, need a little bit more of one-on-one -on -one attention. And so I try to remain very open to having people ask me questions on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I will take questions at my local Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> I, you know, I answer as many emails as I can from people or social media messages because at this point, if you are not vaccinated and you have followed the vaccines for so long, there is probably one or two very specific things that you need cleared up. And you need that cleared up from someone that you deem to be, number one, trustworthy, but then also an expert. You know, I just noticed on your Twitter feed earlier today that you invited people to direct message you about exactly those questions. So um, I hope we don't deluge you and I hope you can answer as many of them as you can <laughs> with us now. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, you know, I, I, I get a lot of the same questions and I get a lot of the same framing of questions. Um, you know, people are just, scared of of vaccines and what that tells me is that we're probably starting the conversation too late um even at the start of this pandemic the conversation around vaccines and how they work and you know the technology that was being developed to to make mrna vaccines possible how the how, how that technology works starting that conversation um only as of last year might be a little bit too late so i try to come back out of today and what is the COVID-19 vaccines, but frame it in a very holistic way to just remind people that vaccines have been around for so long. The technology that goes into vaccines on a very basic level, training your immune system was, you know, explored back in the smallpox days even. And so remind people of the historical relevance of vaccines um, and how, you know, over time vaccines have continued over and over again to save lives. You've chosen to join some very prominent people, including Jesse Jackson, to get their shots. Tell us about the impact you believe that can have and tell us some of the stories around getting shots into arms that you've joined. 
I don't remember. Uh, I think maybe it was only um, Reverend Jackson that I joined. Um, well, first I was really busy. <laughs> when the shots are being rolled out, I was I was terribly busy. But you know, one of the reasons why it was important for me to join um, Reverend Jackson in that moment. Well, you know, quite frankly, he was actually one of the only people who called very personally and was very concerned about a particular community around a community hospital that he 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 worked with on a volunteer basis um, in Chicago. And so it felt like a duty of mine to make my presence known in, in that particular community at that time. Um, and I, I was, you know, present for Vice President um, Harris's second shot. I believe she got her second shot like the day after my birthday last year or something like that. Um, and I don't remember any more stories. I, I, I tended to not be front and center um, when it came to people's vaccinations, largely because, you know, one of the things that I, I remain very true to in this moment, and I will continue to be until I'm blue in the face and, and have to speak about vaccines forever and ever and ever, is that I do want it to remain people's choice. I want your choice to be vaccinated to be your own private decisions. Um, and I don't want anything that I say to come off as me telling you to get vaccinated, but only from an educational perspective, reminding you that um, what I have learned over the course of the last, you know, seven, eight years in my scientific career is now your knowledge. And so um, just to give people kind of a, a, a way to ask questions and to be a beacon um, and, and, uh, um, and kind of a liaison to the community in that way. And you have done that even on Sesame Street, I think, talking about a group of, you know, younger, talking to a group of younger people. And of course, they talk, you're talking then not only to the children, but to their parents. Tell us about you, how you create a message that fits both of those two groups in a way that feels safe for parents to vaccinate their children. I don't ever know how to answer these types of questions because I don't create my message to do anything other than educate. And the beauty of knowledge is that um, in its real truth, it's so simple that it can go from a five-year-old to a 90-year-old and the message remains very clear. Um, I will say that Sesame Street actually was probably a dream gig for me. I used to <laughs> love <laughs> Sesame Street. And so I would probably do that like every weekend if I were called to do that. Um, and also, I, I really love kids. Kids are interesting in the way that they answer questions because they come with a level of truth in themselves. Um, kids oftentimes have done their own research, not in the way that you think about it from, you know, a social media perspective, but they've not just they're not just asking me but they've asked their parents and their school nurses and uh, their teachers the same questions that they're asking me and so when they when they come to me it feels like I am really just you know telling them what they've already know and I'm just kind of stamping it for them in that moment and that's how uh, Sesame Street felt for me and um you know one of the things that has been consistent um, throughout this vaccine development process is that there is, you know, the risk assessment that people have for themselves, right? I'm an adult, I'm, you know, you know, 25, 35 years old. Okay, sure, I'll, I'll get the vaccine. I'll, you know, I'll get the vaccine. What if I do have, you know, chills for a day? That's fine. But my child, the risk assessment for my child might be just a little bit different. 
there is some level of tenderness that comes with that decision um, from a parent's standpoint. And so having children speak up <laughs> for themselves in the same way that my nieces and nephews did around, they were just adamant about getting the vaccine helped. Um, and, and I wanted to, those, the children that do go to their dinner table and ask for the vaccine to have the same type of knowledge that any one of us at 35 or 36 year old um, would have. Dr. Corbett, I want to congratulate you on the opening of the new Corbett Lab. I believe it's going to be called at Harvard. Um, tell us, what's the main target? What's your, your crusade as you open this lab? What's your main goal? We are interested in respiratory viruses um, and uh, particularly from the, the endemic standpoint. So um, you spoke about coronaviruses not really being new, but the important thing that is going to be of note here in, th in this moment is that when the pandemic of the virus that causes COVID-19 is over, it's still more than likely going to be endemic. And what that means is we're going to see um, steady seasonal waves in the same way that we see influenza or any other respiratory viruses that cause the common cold. The thing that is important to note from a public health standpoint is that we already have a slew of viruses that cause the common cold. And if you talk to any internist, um, in a hospital, they'll tell you that during the winter months, actually, you do see an increase in hospitalizations from things that you normally would just write off as a common cold, because there's some people that unfortunately don't fare well with those kinds of viruses. By adding another one, particularly with the type of um, pathogenesis that SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19, we're really probably going to start to see a little bit more overwhelming of our hospital systems. And so thinking about curing the common cold, if you could ever say that with a straight face, is going to be more important than ever. And so Malab is going to be thinking about ways to really decrease the burden of, uh, of common cold viruses, whether they be coronaviruses or other viruses that cause the common cold. And then, you know, coronaviruses is a, is a large family of viruses. So this particular virus is just one. Um, but there are viruses that might look like the MERS virus that circulated back in 2013. Those kinds of viruses also have the potential to cause pandemics. And unfortunately, we will not have any level of immunity to them. And so in order for us to not get into this type of situation again, we're going to have to reevaluate that family tree with some level of scrutiny from a viral immunology perspective, from a vaccinology perspective. Um, and so my lab will be focusing broadly on the coronavirus family tree with the hopes of generating a universal coronavirus vaccine as well. We're getting close to the end of our time, but I would love to pose an audience question. We've been hearing from a number of our viewers, and this one comes from Rosalind Young in California, who asks, did you have a very early interest in medicine and who or what influenced your career path? I did. I, um, I got exposed to science when I was 16 years old, and I could not stop thinking about experiments <laughs> and questions that the world and the universe uh, posed to me um, since then. And so I like to say that I've been a scientist since I was 16, since my first laboratory internship. Um, and the influences of that are really mentors far and wide who not just have allowed me to work in, in, their, in their laboratories, but who have guided me kind of along my career trajectory, 
and answered questions along the way. Um, I think like many career paths, you see people that you wouldn't mind being like at some point and to some degree follow their footsteps, but then also ask them questions about how they got there so that you can get there in your own way. You're a pioneering scientist. You've also, you also go to your community health center for your own care. Tell us about the importance, and just quickly, uh, the importance of community, which is a word you've brought up several times in how you approach science and healthcare generally. I will say it was very interesting to walk into a community center to, to get my like annual um, physical once I moved here to Boston and to like see my face, um, you know, advertising the vaccine. But that's important. It's important for me as a person who speaks a lot about health equity and what it means to have everyone have an equal playing field when it comes to their health and the resources around their health to make sure that I understand exactly what that means in the community from which I live. And so I, I did that similarly when I lived in Maryland, actually, and I will do it probably forever because it is important for me to understand from an inside out what it means to be someone who might not be like me with you know, access to Harvard's best doctors or um, some of the better health insurance that anyone could ever want to go to a community center and say, you know, these are the issues that I might be having or, you know, making sure that I understand how that interface really plays out in my community. Um, and I, I actually, I like having those types of experiences. I like being connected um, with the people that live around me. I like being, having the real local experiences, not just from a community health um, center perspective, but, you know, going to local markets and things of that nature, because the one thing about community is that um, when all else fails, the people around you are going to be those people that, that continue to lift you up. And so it's important to remain um, friendly and um, in kinship with them. Dr. Kuzmekia Corbett, thank you so much for making those connections with us and all of our viewers. We appreciate having you on Washington Post Live. Thank you, and go get your vaccines and your boosters. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.